Welcome to Sterile Packaging on Track Radio. This podcast delivers insights on medical device packaging from regulatory affairs, process management, as well as discussions on the latest in sterile device packaging technologies. Each episode, our host, Charlie Webb, speaks with global experts to bring the most relevant information to our esteemed listeners. As sterile packaging compliance becomes increasingly more challenging, it is vital to avoid information gaps that could risk your medical device packaging program. Avoid package failure risks and build your skill set from your colleagues' experience and from insights from sterile device packaging subject matter experts. You're listening to Charlie Webb on Sterile Packaging on Track Radio. Hello, this is Charlie Webb and welcome to another episode of Sterile Packaging on Track Radio, or as we call it here, Spot Radio. So let me tell you a little bit about our guest today, Richard Hogan. Richard holds a bachelor's and master's degree in engineering and his consultancy, ISO Budgets, specializes in measurement and certainty analysis for ISO 17025 accredited laboratories, also laboratories that are seeking accreditation. His process for estimating measurement uncertainty has helped more than 9,000 laboratories worldwide get accredited. He combines his cross-functional competencies in all phases of metrology, including calibration, quality management, and research. Well, thank you, Richard, for taking time out of your, I know you have a very busy schedule, so thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. So the first thing I want to ask, I mean, this is coming from a guy that is in engineering, runs an accredited laboratory, and I don't like math that much. <laughs> now, you're obviously a guy that does. <laughs> so how did you get into estimating uncertainty? That's a, that's a crazy specialty. Tell me about that. It was actually a, a very big surprise. I came from a background of being in Navy metrology, working in a calibration lab for the Navy. And when I you know, got out of the Navy and separated, I got my you know, first job working for an, an actual accredited laboratory, and I took management control over it. And there was uh, a new concept to me as far as the you know, 17025 accreditation and for estimated measurement uncertainty. So you know, I thought I kind of knew a, a good realm of it going into it. I took a training course. You know, I thought I was prepared for my first assessment six months after taking over their lab, and I just got smacked so hard. I had two assessors that came in, one that used to run the Fluke. He was the head of the metrology director for Fluke, you know, calibration at the time. Mm -hmm. And I had another assessor that was a very well-known assessor, and they just (laughs) tore me up when it came to estimate uncertainty. So I was really embarrassed. I had so many, you know, bad uncertainty budgets that I had to negotiate with A2LA. I did as many as I could in the the time they allot, and I negotiate with them to let me have a six-month extension to give me time to go through. Because at, at the time we had like a forty-some page uh, scope of accreditation, so a lot of a lot oh, wow. of uh, tests and measurements. Yeah, so very large. So I got them to grant me that, and I was just so embarrassed. I said, "Never, ever, ever again." <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so I learned a lot in, in that first six months, and then just after that, I said, "This has got to be an easier process. There's got to be an easier way." So. I just kind of, you know, took what I had learned and I sourced, uh, you know, a lot of information, a lot of tactics from different professionals, you know, in different labs across the industry. And from that, I, you know, developed my process and kind of, you know, took it from there. And that's kind of how I got started into it was a very big, you know, smackdown from an audit and then uh, just kind of, you know, (laughs) turned lemons into lemonade, so to speak. Yeah, well, you have to. I mean, I I can tell you how many... uh 
things that I've learned post audit. And sometimes you're blindsided by those. And I do the very same thing when I, when there's a, we, we rarely do we have a non-conforming event, but if we do have uh, something like an OFI, I mean, whatever that is, I drill down deep to make sure that I know every little bit about that and it gets overcorrected if anything. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of tuition in those sort of bad episodes. You come out the other end, certainly a lot smarter. Now, I know that you have a, uh, a seven-step process for estimating measurement uncertainty. Can you tell us a little bit about those? In fact, if you wouldn't mind, just tell us about the seven steps. Okay. So what I try to do is, you know, most of the industry guides out there kind of just go over four kind of common categories, but there really isn't a step-by-step process. So my background being an engineer and a systems engineer, <laughs> I, you know, I like things very process and very systematic. So what I try to do is come from a systematic process to have seven steps to follow, start to finish to get me through or anybody else estimating measurement uncertainty. So if you'd like, I can go ahead and get started on just kind of listing out the seven steps. Oh, sure. I'd love to. We want to hear them all. You bet. Okay. So the first step is really just kind of, you know, specifying, you know, your measurement system or process. And that just kind of really just kind of goes over, you know, setting the boundaries of the framework for what are you going to estimate uncertainty for? You know, what were you testing or measuring? You know, what equipment are you using? What procedure methods are you using? What's the range of values that you're you know going to be testing within? And, you know, then selecting some specific test points that you're going to test, you know, across this, you know, function the next step, step two, will end up being, you know, identifying your sources of uncertainty. So now that you have specified what you're going to estimate uncertainty for, now's the time to kind of, you know, dive deep, do the research and dig down and find and come up with a list of different sources of uncertainty. And they can range from a lot of different categories. You know, for the most common, you would look at some of your actual data that you'll collect in the lab, which people would you know, typically call a type A data or repeatability and reproducibility. Mm -hmm. And some of them come from your calibration results where you can evaluate those and and determine additional uncertainties or error sources. And then kind of, you know, look at your method, your process, your environment, and, you know, what factors there can you, even if it's a hypothesis, you know, what do you postulate that may actually you know, have an effect on your results. And so, you know, step two is just kind of doing some research and making a list of your source of uncertainty. It's kind of the the broad stroke first before you move in, kind of get a bearing, I guess, right? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, don't leave anything on, you know, don't leave any stone unturned. If you think it may be something, write it down. You can always test it or do some research and see if other labs have come up with a value or quantified that source of uncertainty or found it to be significant. And if not, you know, you can drop it off later, but yeah, this is more or less just kind of learning more about your process and other, you know, sources of error. Okay. That might be related to. okay. And then step three, you know, then that's the time where you kind of go to bat and start testing. Uh, a lot of times most people are going to have, so this category is actually called quantifying your sources of uncertainty. And this is actually kind of taking the data that you may have collected from calibration reports any test results you may in the lab, any proficiency testing or interlaboratory comparisons, you start analyzing that data and quantifying the, un- the sources of uncertainty. And then some of the other ones, you may have to run simulations. You may not be able to test them. You, you know, may have to mathematically simulate them, use software. You could look to other labs that may have tested, you know, some of these factors to see if they have, uh, you know, come up with quantities that, you know, give you a value to these sources of uncertainty. Okay. And then step four kind of starts to get into 
the statistics of actually what is known as what people will call the gum process. And the, and the gum is uh, the international guide to estimate uncertainty and measurement. So what you have to do is now that you have these, you know, uncertainty sources listed, you've got them quantified. Now you have to start to characterize them. And the most common way to do that is to assign a probability distribution that would kind of characterize each one of those sources of uncertainty. And, you know, sometimes it's, pretty easy for people. Sometimes it's rather difficult, but it's a necessary process because once you do that, you'll find out how you would, you know, treat that data for the next step. So in step five, you have to convert each one of those uncertainty values to a standard deviation level. So moving along to step five, which would be to convert your sources of uncertainty to standard deviations, you're going to take the values that you quantified for each source of uncertainty and the probability distribution that you assigned previously. And that's going to kind of tell you how to convert that value to a standard deviation level. And so once you have done that, then you can move to step six, which is combining the sources of uncertainty. And so there's a method that's recommended by the gum, and it is basically known as the root sum of uh, squares. And so it's basically taking the sum of squares of each source of uncertainty, and then you take the square root of those. And that kind of gives you a you know value that's calculated by combining the source of uncertainty and quadrature. Then the last one would be step seven. And step seven is going to be expanding your source of uncertainty. And so by doing that, you have to determine what confidence interval do you want to report uncertainty to. Every industry is different. 95% confidence is the most common, but there are some medical industries that report to a 90% confidence interval. Some go to 99% confidence interval. It just depends on you know what type of lab or what industry you're in. But either case, if you find, you know, you can look at some of the Z tables, some of the uh, students' T tables, and find out what your expansion factor would be. And then you'll multiply your combined uncertainty by that expansion factor to get your expanded uncertainty. I know we have some of our clients that are asking us, uh, and maybe you could answer this question for it. It sort of leans into this. When we, in our laboratory, we're using a meter, and then we have the uh, device under test. What is the, the sort of most widely used system for determining what level of accuracy above the device under test? What, how do those correlate and what, how much gain should there be on the uh, data logger side of that equation in terms of being more accurate or have a higher data resolution than the device under test? Okay, so you're talking about, you know, in comparison to, you know, the standard item versus the unit under test, what is a kind of a good ratio? Yeah, I mean, between like we have packaging machines that they're we're testing with force meters. And most commonly, we're measuring, of course, temperature is everything in sterile and uh, medical device packaging machinery. So we're measuring temperature at the platen and the uh, we will give maybe a a 2% in terms of, of accuracy of that device or tolerance, I guess I should say, of that device. So does the meter, how much more accurate over the device under test should that meter be? I will say it really depends. So same thing, depends on your industry, what standard methods you may follow out there, and you know whatever standard practices you may follow. A lot of industries usually kind of refer back to some of the ANZ Z540 requirements for you know having a test uncertainty ratio of four to one, where you want the uncertainty of the you know, let's say the standard versus the unit or test to be four to one. Okay. But over the years, as you know, our measurement capabilities have gotten better and better and better. There are some instances where 
where, you know, it's very hard to get over, you know, to get over two to one. Mm. Uh, there are some measurements I've performed in the past where 1.5 to one was the best that you could do. But I would say in most general sense, uh, probably for temperature, you would still want to look for somewhere like two and a half to three to one. In most instances, four to one would be best and greater than that would be better. I think a lot of people still kind of you know, use that four to one as a good yardstick, but mm-hmm. depending on what your tolerances may be, if you really, you know, and you could explain this better than, than I would, or at least let me know what the value would be. But when you kind of get below the 30 to 50 millikelvin range on temperature, you start to get, you know, a narrower band where you can kind of have a better standard than what you're, you know, using the measure. Yeah, and we're because most flexible film and um, and packaging is bonding in, in between 250, 350 degrees Fahrenheit. You know, we're not pushed up against you know, some crazy numbers that are are that difficult to meet. But you know, four to one on uh, some machinery can even be a challenge. But we sort of we're usually in the the two mark somewhere on ours, depending on what the device is under test. But maybe you can tell us what are some of the mistakes that obviously you deal with a lot of labs. What are some of the mistakes that they're making when they're estimating measurement uncertainty? Typically, the most common is people uh, do not consider enough factors. There's a lot of labs that will want to do just a type B uncertainty and they'll want to take specifications and values from other studies and compile them, but uh, not actually collect their own, you know, you know, repeatability and reproducibility data in-house. That's usually a common mistake. Another one would be is uh, a lot of times labs will send their equipment out, they have it calibrated, and they don't consider the calibration uncertainty that they receive back in their calibration ports when actually estimate uncertainty for their measurements down the line. So those are usually you know, the three most common problems that I do see when we're working with clients or you know, having labs that have been through an audit and what they're you know, written up for deficiency-wise. Yeah, that usually uh, prompts a lot of questions. Now, you know, here's the challenge that we have in uh, medical device manufacturing and packaging is that a lot of times the person that's in charge of uncertainty is also the... The person that wears about 12 hats under that clean room roof. So these are manufacturing engineers. And I can see where, you know, estimate measurement uncertainty is a is a discipline on its own. In fact, we've used your service in the past because we just got lost in the ribbons and we could not find our way out. It becomes so complicated. And unless it's really your sort of center wheelhouse, depending on what your you're challenging, it can become a very complicated, problematic issue that always seems to be one of the first things that come up in our audits when we're looking at that budget. So there's a time where you really need to pull in an SME like you and have them come and take a look at, if nothing else, just to have a second look. I mean, we're big in our lab of having um, cross checks on everything and on areas where we feel a little bit uncomfortable, we think it's important to bring in an SME so uh, we don't deal with that post-audit and that we're being proactive about getting those correct numbers so we uh, can sit there with great confidence when we're sitting across the table from the auditor. So now your company offers services. In fact, you're, you have a, a teaching program on uncertainty, which would maybe be a good place for engineers to start. Maybe tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I do. I have a couple of different online courses and I'm currently developing more, and each one seems to be tailored more towards a different industry or a different type of lab. But for the most part, you know, I have an online course that's kind of what I call a hybrid course. You can, you know, watch the lectures and perform a lot of the work online and learn a lot online, but then there's also a course project where, you know, I actually help 
students walk through estimate uncertainty for a process that they perform in house. So they get a better understanding that they actually get to do what they're learning and get the concept. Um, and, and my goal with that is actually to get people trained because, you know, not all companies can afford to hire a company like mine or to bring me in as an SME. So having somebody trained in the facility really does help out. And what I you know tell people, even people that you know used to work for me is I used to assign people collateral duties. And I would consider uncertainty kind of a collateral duty in the main scheme. Like you said, a lot of people that uh, a lot of your audience wears a lot of hats. Uh, you know, I come from a, a very similar background where you just you end up having to wear a lot of hats. So it's just kind of time blocking a little bit of time in, you know, whether it's once a week, once a day, you know, if it's 30 minutes, 45 minutes here or there you know, to kind of proactively do something to kind of, you know, you learn more, you keep yourself, you know, ingrained in what you're doing so you can estimate uncertainty. And, and the best part about it is, is being able to explain and defend your results uh, to an assessor when they're looking at them and, and asking, you know, the tough questions. But if, you know, somebody doesn't, you know, want to go down that route or doesn't want to learn and they just rather, you know, subcontract it out, yeah, we provide that service as well. Yeah, I mean, sometimes there's just there's so much to take in, and you know, it's frustrating for me. I mean, I I run a new product development on packaging machines, and that's what I you know love to do. But I'm I, well, I wouldn't say relegated. I I enjoy the lab wing of our company, but you know, there's a lot to know under the new uh, 17025 laboratory, the quality manager there, and I have to know quite a bit about that part of our company, plus all of the other half a dozen places that I have to really show good, solid competence to make things move forward. And so it's challenging. Now, I know there's, uh, and I think you even provide when there are um, good places to start is with some of these calculators. I think you have a calculator that you can start for just doing the kind of first pass down and dirty math side of it, like an Excel type of a calculator. Is that uh, the sort of thing that most people are starting with? That's what a lot of people start with. There are software programs that are both, you know, Windows, Linux, and Mac-based, you know, depending on what type of computers or systems people have. But a lot of times, some of those are very industry-specific. Some are not like an all-in-one solution for all labs. And most labs that I've worked with estimate uncertainty in Excel. And I did that myself. So most of my tools and guides and things are kind of written around doing it in Excel just because, you know, the majority of labs I've worked with are worked for have done the very same thing. And, it, and it's a versatile program. You can kind of, you know, make it do what you want it to do as far as, you know, how many, you know, sources of uncertainty you want to, you know, evaluate. And a lot of people that are kind of power users to Excel are pretty familiar with a lot of the functions and kind of, you know, mold it into something that kind of works for them. Yeah. And a lot of uh, Excel uh, integrates into other uh, potential enterprise systems that the company is already using. So, I mean, as, as I mentioned a moment ago, you said that obviously you're an SME and you provide that service, but when a company wants to just have a second look, is that also a service that you provide? I mentioned that that would be a, a, a great service because we want to try to do as much home cook stuff that we can. I think there's a tendency for device companies because they wear so many hats to farm out every little aspect. And pretty soon your company becomes somewhat evaporative. There, Everything is from an SME or a subcontractor. So I'm a real advocate of trying to keep it in-house if you can at the very least, if you're able to do your best work on something like uncertainty and then just have it cross-checked by somebody like you. So is that a service that you provide? Yes. We do uncertainty budget reviews for a lot of companies. Just like you had mentioned, a lot of companies have somebody in-house that does estimate uncertainty. And whether you know they're just looking to have a second set of eyes take a look at it before an audit, you know, an auditor comes and reviews the information, or you know, maybe they're 
struggling, need some help, maybe you know they're in a beginning to intermediate stage, or maybe it's something they never estimated uncertainty for, and they've you know took a shot at it, and then they send it my direction to kind of give it a good overview and check. And we do that all the time. End up taking a look and see what kind of feedback we can give, anything they may have overlooked, and sometimes even just go ahead and send them the information that they would need to you know kind of add some of those additional sources or, you know, quantify some of those values because we have, I've built a network over the years, you know, working with a lot of labs, commercial and government and manufacturers that, you know, I get access to a lot of different studies that other people would not get a chance to get their hands on. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's why SMEs are so important is you are right in the front line and it's so easy to miss things that, that happen several times with me because it's not going into an area that's not my core area in my company and I they sort of slip away because I'm, I'm not getting, I mean, I have so much data haze in my inbox every day from every industrial trade magazine and white paper that maybe it's because I'm getting old, but I have a heck of a time to keeping up with it. And so being able to outsource some of this stuff definitely makes it a lot easier. Well, it's hard to cover everything possible in the short time that we have. Estimating measurement uncertainty is, as I said before, it's a uh, it's an area all to its own. And, and you've, we've used your service before and we thank you for all the great work you've done for us and always being available for me. That's important uh, to us and we appreciate that. So any closing words or thoughts, Richard, before we uh, leave you here about uncertainty that our group might benefit from? Um, if anybody needs to estimate measurement uncertainty or you know has any issues or problems with estimate measurement uncertainty, they can go to my website at isobudgets.com. I have a blog with a lot of free information and articles out there. There's uh, even a free guide that I give away. If you, The first thing you see when you come to the homepage is you can exchange an email address and download a free guide that goes over the seven steps that I explained today. And, you know, I also, if you're looking for something more industry specific, I have another page on the website that kind of has a lot of the well-recognized industry guides available there, you know, for free download as well. Okay, very good. Yeah. And I think you can also sign up for, I, I get your email in my inbox often, and there's always a good little bit there for me. Thank you for those. Well, thank you so much, Richard, for spending time with us. I know you're a very busy guy and you are always the touchstone when it comes to estimating measurement and certainty issues. Thank you so much. I, again, I know you're busy and I and it's always great when SMEs can take the time to talk to the community and just give a good overview of something as important as this that I think a lot of people think about, but they don't have a real good source to listen in and hear somebody of your caliber talk about it. So thanks again, Richard, for joining us today. Oh, you're very, very welcome. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. What a great opportunity to have Richard Hogan with us today. I always enjoy our chats together. If you'd like to find out more information about Richard, you can visit his website, isobudgets.com. Thanks again for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you with us. You're listening to Sterile Packaging on Track Radio. Thank you for listening to Sterile Packaging on Track Radio. Make sure and subscribe to our podcast today so you will never miss out on our latest episode. If there is a subject you would like us to cover, or if you are an expert yourself and would like to be considered for an upcoming episode, then just drop us a line at info at spotradiopodcast.com. Thanks again for listening in. From all of us at Sterile Packaging on Track Radio, have a great day.